Morgan Totley's debut, Night of the Living Res, is a short story collection set in Maine within the community of the Penobscot Nation. The stories focus on David as a young boy adjusting to living on the reservation, to him as an adult figuring out life in a community reeling with the aftermath of drug addiction. Totley flawlessly uses time and death to tell a story about family, relationships, and what is lost and found while aging. We talked to Totley about how he had no interest in reading in his youth, only to become a best-selling author, writing stories that don't center on the white gaze, and his favorite show to binge to help him unwind after a long day of work. Stay with us on the next episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzy'sbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast. We are your hosts. My name is Denny. And I am Veronica. And today we are saying, well, goodbye to 2022 with a very special interview. We are joined by Morgan Talty. Morgan Talty is the author of Night of the Living Rest. Um, he is a citizen of the Penobscot Indian Nation, where he grew up, and named one of Narrative's 30 Below 30. Talty's work has appeared in the Georgia Review, Shenandoah, Tri-Quarterly Narrative Magazine, Lit Hub, and elsewhere. He lives in Levant, Maine, and is a national best-selling author. Congratulations Yay! and welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I am doing really well. Thank you for having me. And thank you for being here. Um, before we dive deep into all of our questions about your writing and your book, I'm going to pass it off to Denny. We like to do a little fun thing at the yes, beginning. We we like to do some hot hot seat questions, but not really hot seat questions. It's like, you know, a little getting to know you and some of some some other things. So we know that you're gonna be a dad. So congratulations. Welcome, hashtag team, no sleep forever. <laughs> um, what are you most excited about, about being, being a dad now? Oh, God. Um, I don't know, just seeing him grow up and just, or not, not like not wanting that to happen. I already feel like it's going to be like very, very fast. And I don't know, I'm just excited to, to hold him and to see him. That's the most exciting thing I think I have right now. You had a question on your Twitter. You were like, what if what if he like had superpowers? They all have their own superpower. They will have a superpower. <laughs> <laughs> My like, um, so do the cats know that there's that there's a there's a little boy that's gonna be there soon? I think so, yeah. We have uh one of the cats that's like obsessed with me is like has like gotten a little bit like closer to my wife, Jordan. It'll be like, has I, I? They both know, I think, but they don't like bolt. Like they know, but they also don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Because maybe they're trying to trying to avoid it. They're yeah. Like, oh, someone's coming. How long can we prolong it? Because <laughs> we also had a cat. The cat knew the moment that I walked in with that baby that she has been dethroned. <laughs> Girl, you had to take a step back. You're now grandma status. <laughs> Not baby status anymore. So you have received a lot of recognition for Night of the Living Res, but the most recent one is, you know, like we said, a national bookseller. How did you celebrate that wonderful validation? Um, for the national bestseller thing the other night? Yes. Yeah, I um continued on with my evening <laughs> <laughs> and watched YouTube videos and I don't know. Yeah, I, it's like it's been such a like crazy ride since the book came out and it's like not that I can't like not that I don't have any more celebrations in me but it's like I've reached peak volume it feels like and I don't know like it like it like it like another thing will come and I'm like oh this is amazing this is great and it's just like makes me feel good for the rest of the day you know I'm like waiting for the day where like I don't hear anything and I'm just like wow I'm at a low now for <laughs> I don't know how long you know what I mean like I've just been like riding it since july and um it's just been great and i mean every day has just sort of been like a celebration hmm. to ride to ride a high is good I'm, I'm glad that you know you hear something every day if not every other day about your book that's that's that probably would real feel really good oh yeah um so you teach you write you edit you mentor how do you unwind what is what does that mean to you? Um, really going for walks, playing video games, reading also, um, sitting on the couch. Um, I tend to sit down and then my cats end up just like needing something and then I have to get up and then I need something else. Then I got to get up. Um, but really just, I don't know, disassociating with everything I've been, everything that's been going on and just kind of like, I don't know, like living you know what I mean like just getting just just doing like the daily stuff like that's like the thing that like helps me unwind like just connecting with disconnecting with teaching and, and all of it and pretending it doesn't really exist <laughs> yes that that's that's a fun thing that's called that's called like the real adulting mm -hmm. yeah right <laughs> <laughs> so you said that the average human spends a third of their lifetime trying to find a show to watch are you currently following any shows or series? Or are you stuck in your YouTube binge? Stuck in a YouTube binge right now. Uh, my wife and I are watching Modern Family for what I think is like the third time <laughs> in a row. Or not in a row, but like the third time we've gone through. We're almost done with it. And then we've already made the decision that we'll go and rewatch uh Shit's Creek for a third time also um so we are serial returners to uh our our shows we like um and we have shows with like different seasons and stuff like I don't know if you've ever seen the show Red Oaks which is on Amazon um Amazon Prime um really good like but it's like a really summery um show so we'll have that for the summer I don't know we, we just like go back and forth we're always like nothing good is getting made and then we find something and then we just get hooked on it forever um and constantly <laughs> rewatch it I just finished watching Shit's Creek I think for the fourth time around it's definitely one of those shows that you can just keep going and now knowing this that you like this show I have to go back and read your book in the voice of them saying David yeah David <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so we we we've talked a little bit about you know your your celebration of how you're celebrating um, all these little moments, and this has indeed been a wild ride for you the last six months. Um, you have not only published your first book. Um, but it is now a distinguished honor of being a national bestseller among receiving various accolades and mentions in prestigious publications. When you look back on this year and think about all that you have given birth to, uh, what comes to mind when you think about this life that you've made with writing? It's a good one. And I'm glad I stuck with it. Um, and I feel like I'd say that anyways, like, I don't, you know, it's been, you know, I've been writing since I was 18 and it's 10 I do math. I'm bad at math. So 12, 13 years of writing and, you know, it took me eight years to get published and it's like, I'd still be writing. I feel like if I didn't get published, um, I mean, there's like a strong sense of validation, obviously that comes with all of this. And like, you know, I try not to get too like swept up with, the accolades and, and everything like I know like uh, that's part of it but like I like I, I try to retreat back into that artist side of like work you know like this deep curiosity to know something that I wonder if we'll never if we'll ever know you know like I think it was Ocean Young in one of his interviews with the New Yorker said something about how when he reads fiction he feels more alive than he does when he's actually living in like I'm just so deeply invested with like how language can communicate something on the page that like I can't do <laughs> verbally. Um, and it's just, yeah, I, I just, my relation with that, you know, I'm just, I'm happy for it. I'm happy I found writing and I'm happy it like found me, you know, I've, I've always loved storytelling and I eventually fell in love with literature. Um, and I just don't know what I'd do without it. Mm. I'm glad that you said that because in, in a recent um, uh, interview, you spoke about how you fell in love with reading during your years in college. What was the specific moment where you made this transition from being a person who really didn't like reading to becoming someone who was filling their life with literature? You know, I don't... <laughs> I don't know. It was just sort of like, you know, I started taking, you know, I didn't do well in high school just because I really didn't like, I didn't have the, um, like there were just so many things that impede, impeded my ability to do well. And to, I think like really like dive into, um, stuff. Plus I was a kid and I was probably more interested with just being, you know, a kid. And, um, but like when I got to college, there was something about like, not, there was something about knowledge that like deeply interested me and I just like really, really craved it. And, you know, it wasn't just, you know, fiction that I fell in love with, but I fell in love with, you know, all sorts of writing, you know, everything. Um, and I just, I, I don't know. I, I was always puzzled by how it worked, like how it was able to convey something, say something, convince you of something. And, um, you know, I, I really feel like it was probably my first semester, you know, in college, it was like, somewhere along there that it just kind of clicked and I was like I don't know I saw something in it that I don't know gave me it made me feel like I could find a purpose through that was it the reading part or was it the writing part that you felt that you could find that purpose I think at, you know I think at first it was the reading um but then not 
you know, very shortly after it was the writing part. Um, Cause I'd always, I always loved storytelling, like telling stories, hearing stories. And I eventually like very quickly made the connection. I was like, Oh, I could do this. Like I could do, you know, what these writers are like, I could tell a story in this way in, you know, this, in this particular genre. And um, the moment that happened, it was kind of like, it was just a little afterthought and it just became, you know, reading and writing then became like the thing that I found my purpose through. Do you remember the the first like story that you wrote, what it was about? Um, yeah, it was, I don't even, I may even have it somewhere. I probably, um, it was this, what was it? Um, it was three kids in the woods not much not unlike me and my friends growing up um and i remember that i didn't know how to do dialogue so i wrote it kind of like script dialogue like i would have a name with a with a colon and then like what they would say and like that's how it went um because i didn't know i didn't i just didn't know how to do dialogue um and i wrote that and my instructor like really really liked it um and i just remember feeling like really really happy that somebody you know sort of validated that you know um but yeah it was a I don't know it was like three kids who were in the woods I have no idea what they're doing they're probably smoking cigarettes um and I probably thought it was the most transcendental thing that I'd ever written um and yeah and now it's probably in a folder or in a in a trunk somewhere (laughs) um you uh grew up on uh, a reservation for most of your childhood starting around the age of six will you talk to us about if there was a major adjustment for you at that age or after when your family left the reservation that you had to that you had to make um I don't remember too much of the adjustment moving to you know moving to Maine definitely with with my mom I remember at a time I remember there was a moment where I remember, like, I can recall this. Um, I think she was cleaning my ears with my mom was cleaning my ears with Q-tips in the bathroom. I'd like just gone on a bath or something. And I remember being like really sad that I missed my father. And I remember saying that. And that's the only time I think I ever, that I recall ever sort of like expressing any type of like sadness about having moved, having left Connecticut because there were people there I loved and, 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 you know, still love that live on that road that I, that I, um, you know, spent, would ultimately spend my summers, you know, um, on, um, but, but yeah, I, I adjusted pretty well. Um, you know, I made friends, you know, and, you know, people were cut, you know, family was all around. So it was kind of like, it wasn't like we'd moved as just my mom and me to the city where we didn't know anybody. And so that like, obviously had made it easier. Um, but then, when I got older, you know, my mom, when I graduated high school, my mom moved off the reservation and um, I wasn't a big fan of that. I loved, you know, being able to just like leave the house and like go and, um, you know, hang out with friends. But then I was in Orono, um, which isn't too far from the reservation. Um, I mean, it's like a 10 minute drive, um, but it was like far enough that it felt weird you know being with my mom there but then I was at, at college too which is in Bangor which wasn't too far but um I've progressively have grown like not grown but moved farther and farther away from the reservation um since then and um I miss it I love that place it's I mean it's every time I go there I just feel like rejuvenated I 
I, I definitely liked when you would um, include stories about, you know, the culture and all of that stuff. Because to me, that's how my grandmother and my grandfather used to tell stories. And to us, that's how we preserve it. So, you know, you chose these certain stories, beliefs, and practices to incorporate in your novel um, with a very rich culture, um, with folklore and tradition. How did you choose wh which ones are the most appropriate for your novel? Yeah, I, um, so really, it was more like when I was writing, when I was drafting or revising, um, you know, when a particular moment, when it felt right to incorporate something that I knew was appropriate in that context, um, like, you know, saying something like, you know, covering the dishes with the red cloth, you know, at night, um, to telling, you know, the story about the stone people. Um, you know, I always, I, I never went into a story with this book, you know, went into a story being like, oh, I'm going to somehow make this story about this particular, you know, cultural element. Um, for me, it was always about the characters and then, you know, find like finding that common ground with what I feel like is any reader, which is that emotion, which is the fact that like, that is the thing that binds us all is that we all feel um, and starting there and moving outward and then building upon that. Um, and, you know, it's fascinating. It's like, I've talked to, you know, people who are familiar with tribal, like, like Penobscot and Wabanaki folklore. And um, they like say things. And I'm like, I had like, I, I didn't make the, like, there's this, um, in Penobscot, there's a like our cultural hero um, who's mentioned in the book uh, called Guskab or Guskabe, uh, which means the man from nothing. And uh, this linguist, Connor Quinn, uh, who worked on the Penobscot language, he was non-native, non but he worked on the Penobscot language throughout the 90s and built an alphabet system. And he's just phenomenal. He's, he's a great person. Um, was at one of my readings and he came up to me and he was like, you know, we were talking and he was like, yeah, he's like, I couldn't help but like see this connection between, he, he's like, I couldn't help but read D as Gluskabe in a way, like this man from nothing. Like he sort of like just burst into like, we see him and he is like, we don't know where he came from. We don't know anything about him. And he was kind of like this cultural figure. And I was like, where were you when I was writing this book? You know what I mean? So it was like, I feel like I missed, or like, I feel like one of the things was, is like focusing so much on characters like, I wonder if I missed some good opportunities to do some stuff with cultural elements. Um, but I think, you know, I'm happy with the way I approached it because I never really wanted to put things on display for, you know, non-natives, um, you know, dangle it like the dollar bill, like in front of them and keep pulling them, you know, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to do that. And um, so that's really how I went about it. You know, choosing the stuff was really what came to me in that moment and what felt most right for yeah. that scene and those characters and that story yeah I think you were you know very effective in doing it because you know every like I said every nation before they were colonized had these stories about like the men from nothing so you don't like what you said you don't really need to have the same background you just have to feel the same emotion mm -hmm. so can, like go with a story so I think you know if you're interested in what you were you know if the reader is interested in what you were saying they can like do their own research and find out for themselves and see like the connection within you know within nations 
before the colonizers. <laughs> I do have a question, and you already kind of touched a bit on it. Have you had anyone else? I think that's one of like the the most perfect things about when you're talking to people about this thing that you've created and them saying, well, this is what I saw. Have you had more conversations like that where you're like, oh, I didn't I didn't pick up on that when I wrote it or I, that was not my intention, but I can see how they can get this and it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it, it's happened a few times um, and I wish I'm drawn like it's there, but I can't like recall it perfectly. Um, I think. A, oh, God, I really wish I could recall one. It's like right there, too. Like I like I can almost see it. Um, but yeah, it has happened. Um you know, people asking questions about or being like, oh, you know, I thought of um, th this is kind of dark, um, but this this was one that somebody had brought up in, uh, I think, a Q&A just the other night um, and an event I was at. They, you know, were wondering about Frick and wondering about Paige's baby and wondering if perhaps it had been yeah. uh, Frick's child, you know, and um the writer in me is like, I don't know, you know what I mean? Like, cause I like to stay like with the reader. Like I like to be like, like, I know I'm like building that world and having to like, you know, I like to be surprised too, you know? And, um, and I mean, this is not a good surprise, but, um, but you know, like, like somebody asked that and I was like, I don't know. I was like, but I did think about it. Like it had occurred to me, but I never pursued it because I was like, I, I don't know what I'd find there. Um, and, like, yeah, just people bring their own sort of like, because I like stories that leave threads hanging, um, like not big threads, but like the tiny ones. And I love and I just love to sort of like, because those are the books I remember. Those are the ones where it's like a year, two, three, five. I still will like think back of like, I wonder what, it, you know, where that thread would have gone, you know, what it would have looked like. Um, and so re readers have like filled in the dots in their own way, which I think is great, you know, um, in a way they make the book their own yeah that particular part yeah we were arguing about it <laughs> you know wondering you know if if he was the father because it could have been one of those situations because he keeps appearing when he shouldn't be there and you think okay she's left him you know they've split up or they've broken up or whatever and you get to that next story and you're like wait a minute he's still here maybe that didn't happen like what we thought it was maybe it was just a whole nother incident maybe he was you know Yes, y'all have to y'all have to read it. Just saying. <laughs> yes. So, um, thinking about um going through like uh like dark places, the problems that plague the the reservation did not show up over time. This was perpetuated throughout the years of abuse and neglect by colonizers, dismissed by the people in power to the point that their resources are very difficult to avail for the original owners of these lands. These injustices can make people mad and angry all throughout their lives, creating uh, generational trauma that cannot be resolved by just, you know, passing one or two laws. With all of these realities constantly present, you know, it feels very heavy. How do you manage to cope with all of this, like, on a daily basis? Yeah, it's... Um it's a lot. I mean, because there's always, there's always something. Like, there's always, like... You don't think it like indigenous, like all people who have been calling, like every I, any any person, a person of color, you know, is like 
a lot of the issues that they're dealing with, you know, may seem like they have to do with like the daily, like living, you know what I mean? But it's just been like masked and sort of like repurposed in a way where it appear where it appears to be that way. When in fact, it's really not like, it's a problem that has to do with systemic violence. Like most of the stuff, like the problems, the issues we feel, you know, the rage, the guilt, you know, the sadness, like all of those things, like they stem from, yeah, like, human emotion like things that we actually encounter that are like parts of living but they also have part of it found in that systemic violence right and it's just it, it can be really disheartening to like remember that <laughs> to realize that like parts of like the um you know parts of the emotions we feel are dictated by what has happened over a long you know you know, gruesome history um, and relationship between colonizers and, um, you know, colonists and, um, you know, indigenous people. And so it can be, and it's just every day there's something new, not just in Maine and, and you know, New England, but across the U.S. or globally with indigenous people. And it's just like, it doesn't, <laughs> it, just, it just keeps going. It's just a, it's a shit storm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Your book, um, it brings readers into this fictional world that is inspired by the real world um, by the uh, of the Penobscot Indian community. What do you desire for readers to take with them when reading your work where indigenous people are the main characters? Yeah, I mean, I want people to see, you know, I mean, with this book particularly, it's like, you know, a lot of the you can see a lot of the tropes here are like common tropes with indigenous fiction. Um, and the truth is, is just like those things just so happen to be part of my life growing up, you know, alcoholism, addiction, you know, violence, all of those things. And so, of course, I had to write about them um, because even though they're tropes and even though they become sort of motifs, like they're still actually happening in Indian country. Um, but at the same time, like that's the other thing I want readers to take away too is like that's also not necessarily the case um i feel like very few people have talked about my book in the context of class um you know thinking about especially classism i mean the very first story you know makes that clear you know with with d talking about how there's fellas and him and then there's who take the bus and then there's natives who have cars and you know buy white doilies and 4k ultra dvds um you know that you know that sort of stuff um and, you know, like, so right from the start, it's, you know, a very specific, you know, group of indigenous people, um, not to take anything away from, you know, wealthier indigenous people, um, you know, their trauma and tragedies are as real as the ones that I'm writing about. Um, but I think readers need to know that there's like a deep complexity of, you know, the population of indigenous people. Um, you know, we're not, <laughs> we're not all the same. Um, we don't all have casinos and millions of dollars um yeah and special benefits from the federal federal government yeah because another thing that i noticed was like this duality that was being played out with just like the culture of the community and within the book of like here you have um uh david with his mom who is in this relationship with this medicine man and then david's grandmother comes to take them and he and his sister to church and so you you're seeing these very like 
two different worlds in which they both exist in that they live in and i think that really speaks to how um the outside world comes in and can can change the dynamic of a culture and and what people choose what they want to take what they mm-hmm. feel like they they need in order for them to survive and what they need to go on with and and also what gets left behind and and you know what diminishes and one question I wanted to ask you was in regard to death and time. Are these two like characters with, are they characters within your book? Even though uh, it's not mentioned, like here's death, but you know, like I just felt like they were very present in regards to what was taken away and the time, especially watching these two young men grow throughout this, this collection. Yeah. Um, so they, I, I never, I never actually thought about it like that. Um, with, with the idea of death, um, as these characters sort of being sort of representative of it, but yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know. It's sort of like time is this weird element in the book for me. Like the David stories, time can feel, time feels very present in those right we see a boy grow up um but then in the d stories time is is not relevant really um i mean you could take any of those stories and you know really move them about any which way you want i think maybe a little bit of you know tweaking here and there um but those stories are very like and that's what happened ultimately when i was working on the book is like david's stories were fixed they had to stay where they were um i could have made some adjustments to maybe move like food for the common cold and the blessing tobacco where David is close in age. But other than that, that you couldn't, couldn't move them. Um, But with D and Felis, it was much harder because it's like they existed, but they also didn't exist. Like they were, they were there, but then at the same time, they just like weren't like I could take them away from the book and and there's still David. And then you put them in and then there's D and really, you know, I had them in all different orders, you know, like Earth Speak wasn't this wasn't the last one at, at one point. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like the second one that came, you know, after Burn. Um, and so it was just sort of like time. I found it fascinating um, the way it just turned out. And I don't know why it turned out the way it did. Um, you know, maybe I, you know, I just became more obsessed with the people rather than like any specific sense of 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 space and time um and then death too i mean death also became like this um looming mm-hmm. looming character in a way like even when people were gone they're still there um and i mean that's i suppose the way i kind of feel in real life too so um it just like i don't know I, yeah because there is a lot of death in the book um there's a lot of time and there's a lot of timelessness um you know and in, in loss in regards to time and people um and yeah they they are they do become characters in a way yeah that was that was something that i noticed i think it wasn't until like maybe towards the the later end of the story there's one where um david is talking about his dad uh uh going riding with his dad and his saturn is gold Saturn. And and I was just like, this is the first mention where I could feel like, oh, I could put a year 
to it because those those cars aren't mm -hmm. you know they don't exist anymore but with if that was taken out you could you could have had all of these stories just play out and you can have all of these stories play out at any time period and i think that was the only i think for me in my mind like oh okay you know this kind of gives me a sense of what where we're playing at unless someone has had this car for a very long time and taken good care of it um but it was really interesting to watch how time played with especially in um in d and phyllis's story because it's like phyllis because I know that feeling of being where you're where you're just kind of like, I don't know what to do with myself, but yet I'm still here and I got to navigate through all of that. So I think I really, truly connected to those stories in regards to how that time was was being played within that. So well, well done on on using time and death within the way you did in that story. Thank you. To me, it was the death. I, I I I attached to it not in a morbid kind of way it's just it was something that was also very relatable in my family and when you said that you know when you feel like people pass away but they don't they really don't that's that's exactly how I feel when I was reading your your book mm -hmm. I was like they're still around they haven't gone anywhere and they can come back and they they came back and they stayed until the end mm -hmm. Because that's, you know, I think that's that's part of just like, you know, again, coming back to like the stories that we we hear and that have been told to us since we we're young. So to me, that was very like, oh, other people also do that. It's just not me. <laughs> so speaking of people and relationships, um, I was also very drawn to the relationship of David and his mom. They're always not the smooth sail, you know, not always smooth sailing, um, but there's a sense of codependency that they have formed. It seemed that, you know, they have, you know, it seemed like their personal growths um, may have been impaired by each other's presence, but without each other present in their lives, their lives would also have been incomplete. So, you know, it's it's a very complex relationship and I love it because it's so messy <laughs> and I, it's like so real to me. Um, can you talk more about those dynamics and how it was one of the biggest driving forces of this novel? Yeah, I think, you know, at the heart, it really is about, um, I mean, it's the book is, I think, about, a, a, there's a lot of crossovers and what could be the leading, you know, like, forefront, you know, stars, <laughs> so to speak. But I feel like David and mom and Dee and mom um, are, there, there's something I mean, you sort of said it, you know, like they're like they they're they have this codependency, you know, right? Like they can't exist without one another in a way. Right. We see how D is, you know, in those stories when he's not with his mother. Um, and I mean, we don't necessarily see what his mother's. Well, no, we do. You know, she's, you know, in a crisis stabilization unit at one point. Right. Um and obviously D hasn't been, you know, around. He's been with Tabitha, you know, in that apartment. Um, and so she's also not in a good space, right? For that reason, but also for reasons having to do with the trauma they all experienced. Um, but then like, you know, we see, you know, them come back together, you know, in Earth Speak ultimately. And there's like this strong sense of sort of like hope, at least I feel at the end of that story, you know, about these two. And, 
you know, in writing the book, you know, I was just, I was, I was so deeply interested in like the way, you know, how we can love the people we, you know, quote, hate, you know, how we can like, how do we overcome, how do we overcome the bad things that people have done to us or have done that have affected us and still love them? Um, because like, I feel like that's like one of the biggest problems people have today is like, they don't know how to deal with difficult quote, difficult people and like um, people, you know, and family members who, you know, have, have struggle with addiction, struggle with, you know, any, you know, it could be, you know, kleptomania, you know, anything, right. Anything that has like brought their family turmoil, right. You know, the quickest and easiest thing that a lot of people do is just cut them off. And it's like, I never wanted to do that in the book. Like I always wanted to like put them back together somehow. Um, and like, I think that's, you know, was the main thing I thought about was like, okay, how can I make sure that they don't end up separated? Um, like how do they come back to each other? How do they find their way to each other? Um, and how do not just mom and David, but how do all of these characters, how are they there for each other? Like even in the opening story with Phyllis walking up the steps, you know, D says something like, Fellas walked by and walked fine by himself by up the stairs, but I still walked with him. Like these tiny moments of like care that we show each other. And for me, it was, you know, trying to find those tiny ones, but then also the big ones too, those big moments. Yeah, it was the blue blanket for me. Oh yeah, the yeah, yeah, the quilt, right? Yeah, that she brings out. Yes, that was her favorite one. And I'll say, yeah. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> So there's this, you know, for me, an overlaying feeling of like desperation and almost kind of claustrophobia while reading the book, like this feeling of almost like kind of stuck and everybody's trying to escape, whether it's, you know, addiction or any other way, you know, Felis did some some stealing, Paige tried to run away multiple times, and even David's mom went, you know, checked herself, Um how how important was this theme you know being run through while while you made this book and like the readers feeling feeling this way i don't i don't know i feel like i feel like that part is sort of just like innately in me um just because growing up i constantly was like you know, I would, I would, you know, I'd be home for most of the year and then I'd go to my dad's, then I'd leave and then I'd come back and then I'd leave, you know, and that goes on, you know, for, you know, 12 years or so, you know, 12, 13, 14 years, like you begin to develop this, like, at least I did this, like, I've been here too long. I got to go, you know, but I can't get out or something, you know, and then it's like, you leave and you're like, oh, I didn't want to leave in the first place. And then you like are there and you're kind of like, oh, but I like it here, you know, and then eventually you long for that place you left. And so like, I feel like I've always have been in that mindset, um, you know, very much so when I was younger and when I wrote these stories. And so I think in like a practical way, I think it probably seeped onto the page um you know into the book but at the same time i recognized a lot of people who you know yeah i was shuffling back and forth but i saw a lot of people who were stuck in that like cyclical way of like wanting to leave getting away but coming back you know or you know or getting away and you know their lives being totally fine you know what i mean um but more often than not it was just people 
you know, wanting to leave, not being able to leave, wanting to leave, not being able to leave um, in this like pull, right? Like this connection to place too, you know, like I was talking about earlier, like when my mom moved off the reservation, like I was kind of mad, you know, cause like I wanted to stay there. I wanted to be with friends and, and stuff. And um, it's not like I was far away again, but still like, however much I felt I wanted to leave the res, like everybody's always like, Oh man, I got to get out of here. You know, they, everybody says that about their place. Um, and then when they leave, they're like, Oh, I wish I hadn't left, you know? Um, and so it just sort of worked its way into the book. Like, I think it is like a, it's unique to these characters, but I think it's like a feeling so many people feel, um, especially people who have been like pushed and marginalized into specific spaces. Right. Um, they have a sense of like a love hate relationship with that place. Mm. Um, so there is nothing, uh, that pleases us more than reading a beautifully written short story collection. Yes, I love a short story. Um, <laughs> what you have created uh, with Night of the Living Reds has been deemed a short story collection, but you have created this world where it feels to float between a collection and a novel. When you sat down to write this book and you thought about what shape the book would take, how did you decide that you wanted it to be done in this style where the stories would involve the continuation of main characters throughout? Yeah, I, you know, I had the only, in, my intention was to write a short story collection. And, you know, I had David as a character already. And I wrote him. Um, and I wrote a book, you know, full of just David character, David stories, like and it and it moved chronologically with him as a boy all the way up until Night of the Living Res when he was a young adult. And that was the book I thought it was going to going to be but the book turned out to just be really boring um and not very fun to read really um it was just the same people different situations same place um and it just it, it felt it just felt very mechanical it didn't work and um then i discovered d and i discovered this question of what happened how did he become david and so i started writing d and fellow stories um as standalone short stories and you know in the same way that i approached the collection um until eventually i was like oh, all right so i have all these short stories now i'm like how do i string this together because they, there wasn't necessarily an overarching like arc like there was but it was kind of like invisible i guess like the the overarching arc was like how did we get to this how did we get to this person um but each each story wasn't like that wasn't the main question for the stories. Um, and so I was like, all right, well, how do I do this? How do I make this work? And it was like it was literally just almost like a puzzle. Like I just kind of put it, you know, together, you know, with the David story and a D story, a David story and a D story. And it just. I don't know, I just I listened, I, you know, was when I was writing, I just followed what I felt was right. And ultimately it turned into this book um and you know agents and stuff you know are always like oh i can't sell this you know if you turn it more into a novel then we could probably sell it and um you know i tried but it the more i did the more the stories broke until eventually i was like whatever if nobody takes it nobody takes it i'm just gonna it is what it is it's this is the book this is how it has to be and it was just a matter of you know writing so many stories and trying to stay true to that to trying to stay true to the short story but then also recognizing the opportunity that was that the story was showing me that it could do more 
um, and then trying to tease that out in a way where I wasn't putting too much pressure on the story, asking too much of it, um, and trying to show that sort of like kindness to it. And it just ultimately turned out this way where it was like, you can read them as standalone pieces, but then there's also this larger, you know, when you read the book from start to finish, you know, it's in, and like, I questioned whether or not the stories could stand alone. And obviously I think there's some contextual stuff that happens. Right. But it's interesting to hear from high school teachers or teachers in college who have like assigned some of the stories, you know, to their students. And it's not the whole book. It's just like a couple stories here and there. Um, and so that always sort of validates my assumption that the book can function as a story collection, that it was, you know, um to go against some of the goodreads people not poorly marketed that it was <laughs> that it was a story collection <laughs> it, it, it was very re reminiscent to me of like sabrina and karina by Khalif fajardo einstein oh yeah okay so you know she had she had like also you know people that are kind of like showing up in in different stories and then i think to me that's why i love short stories so much it's like it's up to you how you would connect all of them. And it uses a lot of like readers imagination to be like, oh, you know, this could have happened and they could have met here. Cause it, it was like that for her book too. So that, that's what I like about, about this. Cause you're like, oh, there's some loose threads, not too big, but you know, enough for you to be like thinking about it and always be like in the back of your head, what have happened to, to D if he did this instead of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was um I was listening to a conversation that was happening on Instagram live and the person who was doing the conversation just casually asked, you know, had anybody watched the Atlanta series and their thoughts about it? And he was just saying, you know, like I hear a lot of people were complaining about it, especially like the third season and then the, the how it ends. And then it occurred to me while he was talking, I was like, Atlanta was a short story collection. If you were to, you know, if you were to really think about it, that it wasn't something that needed to be told straight through. And I think that's the beauty of short stories is that you don't need one character that you have to follow through all 300 plus pages that you are given the opportunity to dive into different lives and to wonder like are they connected are they in the same universe you know and if not maybe I can pull something together to make it feel like they are in the same universe but I think what you and like people like Disha Filia and and um other writers have done with these short court story collection is you've really shown like that this place meant that they are like lower than a novel is insane because of what you can do within this this book and um I I see you know we shout see. out to the to the accolades that's coming in we see why because of what you all you all are gifted in doing and telling these stories so um, in May of 2021, you said that you have joined the Massachusetts Review as a senior prose editor. Um, you know, it was like you wanted to make a dent in the big, bad publishing world. How has it been like, um, you know, joining joining them? And what was uh, the most rewarding thing regarding this, this type of work? Is there really? Um, <laughs> is there? Yeah. <laughs> um, 
There is. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of reading. Um, there's a lot of reading and there can be a lot of a lot of editing, too. Um, you know, I am just you know, I love literary magazines and literary journals. Like I feel like without them, like they are in a way like slightly keeping slightly checking big publishing. Um, right. Because it's like there's a, a strong readership for those literary magazines and those readerships, while they make up a small population, probably of like the larger reading po population for like big publishing, you know, um, they still have a say, you know what I mean? Um, and it's like, that's why we need literary magazines is because like they, they aren't afraid to take risks, right? They aren't afraid to, I mean, maybe, you know, somewhat, you know, thinking about their capacity and their sizes and their finances and stuff. Um, but when it comes to writing, they're not afraid to, you know, to publish what they want, what they, what they feel is great literature. Um, not saying big publishing doesn't do that, but they tend to shy away from it sometimes for money purposes. Um, but at the Massachusetts Review, I mean, it's been, it's been great to read works. Um, it's also been great to publish works by writers who have like never published in magazines before, um, you know, to get that, to get a submission from a writer who hasn't found a home yet for their work and to be like, this is really good. Like, you know that this is really good. Right. And they're like, is it? And I'm like, yeah, it's really good. And it's coming in the magazine. That's how good it is. Um, and, you know, sending those, those, uh, you know, acceptances out. I, I love that. Um, and I love working with writers on stories like that. Like those have been like the big rewards for me. Um, that collaboration, that sense of like two people coming together to try to find something that's there. That's be, that is like that, that takes two people because like, I feel like a writer and an editor, like, like I'm editors. I just are, are phenomenal. Um, and like, you know, without them, it's like it's like without the editor the writer doesn't exist and without the writer the editor doesn't exist right this sort of like you know um like they exist like they 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 depend on one another um but that's the biggest reward for me is like working with new writers um but then also working with writers who are like have published in big places and me being like oh wow i'm telling so and so <laughs> that they need to do this or like th this isn't working um that's also fun does it does it make you nervous when you have to tell somebody, oh, I think you need to to change something here? Um, I think at the beginning it did. And then finally, I realized I knew what I was talking about. So I was just like, if you don't like and and I haven't yet encountered anybody who's had like like I, I'm always I'm very, very like careful with the feedback I give. And like I never you know, I always try to see it in light of what's best for the story, you know, um, and but I've never encountered anybody that's had like a big ego be like, you know, no, we're not going to change that to a period <laughs> and, you know, have two sentences here. Um, so it hasn't happened yet, but who knows? <laughs> so we are at the part of our conversation where we like to ask every single guest, be it a writer or an artist, any kind of type of creator. We want to know what your top five favorite books are of all time or uh, the top five books that you are very excited that you know that's coming or that you're currently reading or you've finished reading and you want the world to know about it. And you can do a mix if you like. It's up to you. All right, I'll do I'll do a mix. Um, all right. So let's do all right, five books. That's it's not a lot of books to name um, yet here. I'm going to struggle. Uh, there's The Lesser Blessed by Richard Van Camp. 
um, which uh, is by a uh, First Nations writer. Um, my probably my favorite book. I love that book. Um, so the Lesser Blessed has to definitely be on that list. Um, oh God, what else? Um, I don't know how to say her first name. I think it's like Cha Cha Lin, uh, The Unpassing, which came out, I think like two years ago or three years ago. Um, absolutely love that book. Um, this is brilliant. Um, let's see. I have to hit up my guy, Anton Chekhov, um, and his stories. Those have to be on the list. Um, oh, good Lord. There's, oh, there's two spots left. There's two spots left. Um, We'll give you an extra one for honorable mention. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Um, Louise Erdrich has to definitely be on there. Um, you know, just, just prolific writer. It's just crazy how much work she's produced, all of which, you know, I've consumed and just really, really love. Um, let's see. I know I'm forgetting. I know there are books here later. I'm going to be in bed. I'm like, why did I not put that on the list? Um Oh, um, St. Lucy's Home for Girls Raised by Wolves by Karen Russell. Um, her story collection is, you know, has always just boggled my mind on how remarkable she is at making normal situations become completely abnormal, but still feel like it could happen. Like there could be a vampire there. There could be a werewolf there. Um, all really great. And then for the honorable mention, let's see. Um, Oh, the honorable mention. I'm going to throw in, I wrote about uh, for the Wall Street Journal's read thing or whatever. I had a piece in there um, and I talked about Joseph Hahn's nuclear family, which came out this summer, which I thought it was just it blew me away. It was just a phenomenal, it is a phenomenal book. Um, and I have, I'm not ashamed to say I have multiple copies of it. So <laughs> that book is good. That, that book is definitely good. It was one of those where it took a twist and you're just like at the very beginning. And you know, when you, when you see people write something, when you all write a book, there's different ways that it can go and people can follow with the formula that oh this is the book that's popping i need to write something like this but when you all like you and joseph and who whoever else out there are writing these stories and you all are presenting something in a brand new way to tell a story it just fills my heart up and i just want to say thank you so much for um giving us the opportunity to read your book and to to read a, a set of stories that fill us up in this in this beautiful way that is so enriching to us and this is why you know we do what we what we do and we are so grateful to in 2022 to talking to you um and the gift that you have given us this year so thank you so so very much and uh we just look forward to what the next years have coming for you well thank you you're welcome and thank you for doing what you do it's great that you host writers talk with writers and share all of this stuff with readers um it's important and i'm happy to be a part of it and i'm happy to be the last part of 2022 so thank you Thank you. Thank you so much more again. Thank you for making um, us realize that, you know, we we live by emotion and our stories might 
be different, but you know, innately we're all the same mm. and we connect with the same things. And yeah, it was it was a good close for our for our year this year. I really truly appreciate your stories. Well, thank you for ha having me. All right. Well, you take care. You enjoy the rest of what's left of December. Good and... luck with Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take care. Thank Bye. you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Have a good rest of the year, guys. You too. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our show. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Vulgar Geniuses. Our theme song that you're not in your head along to was produced by Sean Kantrowitz. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Dammit. That's S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast. See you soon. Deuces. Deuces.